What is Crackalackin, Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Valley coming at you with a very special guest, if you're watching on YouTube. My dog, Wade, named after Wade Wilson of Deadpool, who wanted to be in my lap while I was recording this, just to say hi. He's a little tired. We were just playing fetch in the excruciating heat for a minute, but he's about to get down now. But he wanted to say hi. Let's introduce, say hello to everyone. If, if you're on the podcast version, I, I apologize. Wade! What is Crackalackin, Hardwood Ox listeners? I am Dan Valley coming at you with a very special guest before we dive into this mailbag. My dog, Wade, named after not Dwayne Wade, as most people assume, but Wade Wilson, uh, uh, Deadpool, one of my favorite Marvel characters. If you're on YouTube, you could say hello to Wade right here. He looks terrified, but he's he's in my arms. He's a little tired. We, we just play fetch, but I'm going to put him down. And remind you all to please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. I like puppies. Why wouldn't you want to subscribe to a podcast that loves puppies? Or I call them puppies, and they're really my two-year-old dogs. Uh, if you're new to the YouTube channel, please hit subscribe, like button, comment, help us bust the algorithm. Subscribe to us wherever you're getting your podcasts. Thank you for all the returning listeners. Welcome to the first-time listeners. We have a lot of fun around these parts, and we try to do a thorough, unserious job of covering the NBA for the most part. There are rants. Everyone knows that there are rants. I do want to say one more time, and I'll wrap this up. Uh, I know I thank our listeners and subscribers a lot, but Hardwood Knox just had its second best month all time when looking at downloads and engagement. We had like a while, a while ago, we had like crazy amount of downloads pre-Blue Wire Network. Um, I don't know what happened. I don't even remember what the month was, but uh, it means a lot to me that you continue to consume this podcast whether it's on YouTube or just a typical podcast player. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you all that you keep coming back, all the DMs that I've gotten, Discord messages. You can join in on that in the YouTube description or the podcast description. The link is there. Follow us on all the socials. But I can't tell you how much it means to me that uh, it does seem like maybe we're growing. We'll see if this keeps up. And I've been committed since I've made this more of a solo operation to um, putting out more content, and I hope you're enjoying it. But let's get to that actual content rather than wasting nearly two minutes on this rambling, but if you didn't want to meet Wade, even even virtually, uh, I don't know if you should be listening to this podcast anyway. We have a mailbag. Uh, I finally got to it. We actually ended up publishing different episodes last week, but these are our YouTube and Twitter questions. Uh, it also really means a lot to me that we have enough questions from Discord, YouTube, and Twitter to split up the mailbags per week, maybe. so. And we have one Discord question, too, that I think I'm going to be able to fit in here. Without further ado, though, uh, this one comes from Chris Curtis on YouTube. If the Suns or Heat can get KD for what seems like an underwhelming package, uh, example, no bridges included or not a huge haul of picks, how do you think that affects the future of the league and CBA agreements? As a Suns fan, I take it as Suns fan, I take it because you do what you got to do to win a chip. But for a league level view, it would look like players can just control everything. I don't know why, but it feels like this is the ultimate test of who really has the leverage in this league. Love the show as always. We love you too, Chris. Thank you so much for saying that. Yeah, look. Regardless of what happens with KD, these new CBA negotiations are going to be fascinating, uh, maybe morbidly so, but uh, we're talking about the not like an extension of what has been a longer line of trade requests and players also just finding a way to get paid and then leave later on, or the abolishment almost of big names leaving in free agency altogether, even though that's how Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving ended up where they are. The Durant thing is extreme because you have someone who is not just under contract for another four years. And this would be the uh, 
the issue regardless because of how long contracts are anyway, but he, he signed a second deal with the nets and then decided to do this. And so it's, and it, he's fresh. We're talking about uh, less than a year after signing that extension, I believe, unless I'm totally off there, but with so much time left on his deal in a situation that he chose, this wasn't restricted free agency repressing his, not just his market value, but his ability to leave. He chose the Brooklyn Nets the first time and then chose to extend. And so I think that's going to be a big discussion, especially if, as Chris notes, the Nets feel obligated to move KD for what is not this all-time haul. And look, they're out of their fucking minds that they think they're going to get uh, the equivalent of Anthony Edwards, Carl Anthony Towns, and four first-round picks. Uh, I think that they're not going to get an all-star plus draft picks either. I think they're going to have to choose one side or the other, as I've said many, many times before. You go the draft pick route, or maybe you get someone like a Brandon Ingram, or you figure out a way to make it a complicated deal where Ben Simmons is leaving as well, and you get a Donovan Mitchell. I don't think it's going to be both. You're not going to get a an entrenched star. Maybe you get a prospect that has all-star potential, but I also don't think you're going to get a prospect at this point like a Scotty Barnes or an Evan Mobley. And so I do think that they're going to be accepting less than what their asking price is if and when they move him. I wouldn't rule out any more them uh, by them, I mean, Katie and Kyrie sticking around in Brooklyn because that would be like the most fitting outcome to this fucking shit show uh, that it's been since they've showed up. Uh, but I, I, I'm with you, Chris, that I think there's going to be a lot of pressure from team governors to gain more control over the way that players move. I don't, I don't even want to, it sounds cringy to frame it like that, uh, but I do think that, you know, player empowerment. It's always been, I'm all for, I'm pro player. I want to make that clear. Everyone who gets paid, I want them to get paid. If I say their contract is bad, it's from a team perspective. If that's the money they were offered, um, that's their market value. And under uh, most players, I would say they're going to be underpaid or most stars. So all players to me are either underpaid or being paid at market value because that was their market when they signed said deal. Now, but we are talking about when we say player empowerment, you're talking about the top like 1% of the NBA players that actually have it. I'll use Rudy Gobert as an example. Do you think that he had the ability to choose where he went in a trade? He didn't. And he wanted to be in Minnesota. I'm not saying that they rolled the dice on him or that he had to settle, but that is a top 20 player, top 25 player. If you want it like, like in the NBA, the, he doesn't even have the ability to just say with the amount of time that's left on his deal, I only want to go here. So when we're talking about player empowerment, we're talking about the very select few. And the way that things are unfolding at the moment, even with Donovan Mitchell, who the Jazz are shopping by all appearances under their own volition, it's been common knowledge. And you should check out Nick's Film School just did a podcast. Uh, it was a few days ago. I only just listened to it today. I'm recording this on a Sunday night um, with Spencer Chekets, uh, who's a host a radio show on ESPN 700 in uh, Salt Lake City, I believe. He had mentioned that it's known. He backed it up. It wasn't just like he's the first person to say this. It's just been known throughout league circles that Donovan Mitchell doesn't want to be in Utah. And so did, did the idea that he would leave in free agency when he got there in three years play a role in what the Jazz are doing now? Maybe. Um, those are issues that are going to crop up. Even dating back to Anthony Davis trying to force his way out of New Orleans when he had a full two seasons left on his deal. Um you know, even if we're going back even further, like when Kyrie Irving did it to Cleveland, I think I think team governors are going to want to push back on these um, trade demand types. And also when players are um, giving them a short list and they know that's player empowerment is KD is going to absolutely have a say in where he's going. Malik Beasley did not have a say in whether he went to Utah or not. Bradley Beal should probably be in like the tier below, but he has a no trade clause. So he's an exception there. Um, 
LeBron could pick where he wants to go. Patrick Beverly can't. Boyan Bogdanovich can't. And I'm just throwing random names out here. Frank Nilakina can pick wherever he wants to go, but Luka Doncic can't. So my, my point here is I don't know that we veered too far into this actually becoming a problem. Again, the, the Kevin Durant example is so extreme. What you worry about is his exact circumstances becoming an exemplar for other players down the line. And you don't want to constantly as an organization have the threat of a player being able to get out under um, looming over your head. You that's why contracts exist in a sense. Yeah. If they want to sign one plus ones and you're willing to give that to them, then yes, you've put an onus of, uh, you've put the onus on yourself, um, giving them a ton of leverage. But if you have someone under a four year, no option deal like extension as, as KD is, you're supposed to be able to buy some security there. And I think that that's going to be a huge sticking point among the team governors, in addition to some other things. But I think that just the um, player movement in general, that's going to be something that gets talked about. On the flip side of that, you could argue that, well, teams sign players and then immediately just trade them, looking at a la Blake Griffin. And so if they have the right to do that, why doesn't the player have a right to get out? I don't know that that's right. I don't know that that's wrong. Like they're they're signing a contract. Um, that's something that they need to... Th- like they're thinking about that their agents are negotiating. Um, and that's part of just the gig. Everyone has aspects of their job that they don't like having to relocate on a whim is part of um, an NBA players gig. In addition to many other things, appearances, they have to deal with all the vitriol on, on social media. So I'm not saying what they do is easy, but that has to be factored in. And if your team governor and this situation specifically to bring it back to Chris's question in full circle, if Kevin Durant is able to get to, let's say Miami or Phoenix, at this point and not even the Nets sending him to another team that wasn't on the list because they're worried about sort of burning bridges with other stars with with player agents in general who wanted their their talent on a team that's going to I don't use the word acquiesce or even say pander to but to at least feel obligated to take what the player wants when leaving into account um, there are teams many of them most of them that are going to think along those terms that they don't want to find themselves in a position to disenchant other future players and then agents that they have. And I'm not even saying Kevin Durant specifically, but agents in general, looking at the situation, they don't want to single themselves out in a bad way. I don't know what the fix is there, uh, but there's also teams you could argue that, well, you know, they're not even, they they're able to move players. Cause there's like this myth that they can't pay them. Um, and that's why I expect that the team governors are going to bring up players. You draft should count less against the salary cap or not count towards a luxury tax bill um, when you've kept them for X amount of years or whatever it is. And I don't know, look, I'm not going to cape for billionaires. Uh, and I understand why people would say, well, they should just pay them and they pay the luxury tax. I'm with you. Uh, but that's not going to, that's not going to resonate with the the actual team governors with the billionaires. that are in, in control of these teams. I don't know what the solution is though. I don't know, especially in the Kevin Durant instance. And I could imagine that negotiations will get ugly if this situation specifically ends with him going to Miami or Phoenix when in theory, and this is not, you know, Oh, we have to think about, you know, one of the one, a top 150 player was moved. Was there a better package out there? Uh, you can look, it's Kevin Durant, every team, if given the opportunity and the price, right, would trade for Kevin Durant. And so Kevin Durant said, I will play for any organization. No, not all of them are going to put their best chips on the table, but there would have been others in theory that can beat the offer of a Phoenix and Miami, but they wouldn't because they didn't want to run the risk of having a player in KD who didn't want to be there. So yeah, this is all of this is just going to be uh, fascinating to watch unfold because it's going to have very big implications on how CBA negotiations 
go, in addition to just many other things. Uh, we do have another question about the... Well, no, this wasn't that one. So let's just keep moving on in order. David K., I hope I'm pronouncing that right, from YouTube, asked, can you power rank your title contenders? David, this was a good question. It was also a mean question. Uh, I want to point out none of this is written in stone, mostly because we know that there are some trades that could still go down this year. Uh, and I, I really have to sit and think even more about it. And I took like, I came up with my top seven and it might even be top eight. Uh, and it's prided on the roster staying the same right now. It took me forever to put them in, in the right order. So as of now, I have the nuggets at one. I think that with the defense, excuse me, they're going to get from KCP and Bruce Brown. It adds layers to their rotation. The bench still worries me a little bit, but you're getting back Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray. Health concerns, sure. I don't really care about Jamal Murray. He's going to be fine. ACLs aren't the injuries that they used to be. He is just an absolute workaholic and a super tough guy. Their roster is so well balanced near the top uh, that I think this is the year for them. And I'm, I'm rolling the dice on MPJ and Jamal Murray both staying relatively, if not super healthy, being able to take the load off Jokic. I'm also banking on, we know Murray's played even as inconsistent as he's been at a sustained all-star level on offense. I'm betting on Michael Porter Jr. Getting back to, uh, you know, the 2020, 2021 season that earned him the, the max extension, not fully guaranteed, but that, that large extension he signed, the nuggets are, there are some matchups I don't love for them, including this next team. Uh, but I think that they're going to take a lot of people off guard. And it's wild to me that when we're talking about the top five or so teams that I don't hear them mentioned enough, at least nationally, Denver fans, Nuggets fans. There are a lot of smart basketball fans in general that know how good they could be. I have the Warriors at two and you give them the benefit of the doubt. I think Steph is maybe the second best player in the NBA right now. One of the three best players for sure. I have Giannis at number one. And then I haven't really gone through who I have after that. Um, I think that Clay Thompson's going to have a better year than he did like the partial season plus playoffs. He was back just having more game time under his legs. Uh, Draymond green. Uh, there are going to be moments where you, where he's maddeningly bad on offense, but he is a transcendent defender. They have Kevon Looney back. You lose Otto Porter jr. That worries me a little bit. Uh, you also lost Gary Payton the second. That worries me a lot as well when looking at their defense. But you signed Dante DiVincenzo, who's just a an otherworldly fit for them. Uh, I like the Jermichael Green addition. I don't think he's going to give you as much as Otto Porter did, but he certainly replaces Bielitsa there. Where I do worry and why I don't have this team at number one and why I'm not even sure I want to put them at number two is Steph feels like their only certifiable star on the roster, and they are going to be relying more on kids. What does Wiseman look like? How much is Kaminga playing? I think Moody, just based off somebody like that dude is ready. Uh, he's going to plug right in rotation and be fine. Uh, does Jordan Poole have a nice follow-up campaign? Those are still questions, but the Warriors played uh, fantastic basketball last season. They, they won the title. They beat really good teams to get there, including that Boston Celtics squad. I just think that they do deserve a level of the benefit of the doubt here. I have the Celtics, uh, excuse me, I have the Bucks at number three. I, there's the Chris Middleton injury to think about. Their bench depth isn't spectacular either, but Brooke Lopez, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday. It's tough to cobble together a four-man combination in the league that has the um, that has the possibility of being better than, than that uh, quartet. I think it's, look, Chris Middleton needs to be healthy. That's a big one. I think the Bucs are probably coming out of the East if he stays healthy in the playoffs. That's no, I don't mean any disrespect to Celtics fans there. Um, I do have the Celtics at number four. The Malcolm Brogdon addition is just perfect 
They have eight ridiculously good players on their team now. And here's the other thing. None of them are bad defenders. I think you can quibble over whether you think Malcolm Brogdon is an average defender or an above average defender, but Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, Robert Williams, the third Al Horford, Grant Williams, Derek White, Malcolm Brogdon, that eight man rotation is all really good defenders. I still think it would be nice if they had like a, a primary table setter that is fits that bill in every sense of the word, but it's 2022. I don't want to find synonyms for conventional point guard is my point here. So I, I just think that they're deeper and Tatum and Brown are still young so that either of them can get better. Robert Williams, the third could get better and be, be healthier. Um, they are in the East. It's the Bucks and the Celtics and everyone else right now to me. I have the Clippers at number five. This one was tough. Even if I'm giving benefit of the doubt to Kawhi and Paul George to remain healthy, I, I need to see what John Wall looks like on this team. Um, can they add the element of speed that he brings to, because I know they like to slow down, but does he also give them just someone who can take them through the motions of their, their offense in general, which is things that they need at times when, uh, the half court sets bogged down and you just need someone on a different level as a facilitator, as a rim pressure guy uh, from Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. So I like the addition, but there's still just, there's some questions here for me, but they're, they're a deep team. They are so deep and they're deep with wings too. And now that they could trade a future first round pick, I keep an eye on them or the trade market. They're a team that could slingshot up my rankings by off season's end. And I think that they're going to be a lot of people's titles picked. And I, I can't, Go against it. I have the Suns at number six. Uh, and again, this is pre-KD trade if, they, if they're able to pull it off. They're, some of their key members, including Devin Booker, are young enough that they're going to continue to get better. Cam Johnson, Mikael Bridges, DeAndre Ayton's back. You can't, running this thing back almost exactly, uh, adding, you know, Josh Akogi, having uh, Damian Lee. Okay, fine. Uh, bringing back Bismack Biombo, you lose JaVale McGee. Dario Saric could be healthy. That's going to be different. Does Landry Shamit have a more consistent season where he actually feels present on the court a little bit more? Perhaps. Uh, this team is still going to be really good. Chris Paul is another year older. They just put together one of the most dominant regular seasons ever, really, and then proceeded to get bounced in the second round by being trucked by the Dallas Mavericks. It feels... I don't think it's stale. We're in year two of this CP3 core, but just the circumstances by which we've gotten here, they worry me. And if you stay the same with the Nuggets and the Clippers getting healthier, the Warriors even being healthier, like we didn't see Wiggins, Draymond, Clay, and Steph play together basically until the playoffs. It's just not the time to have stood pat and made marginal, um, if no, improvements. So that's why the KD trade for them specifically looms big. I have the Sixers at number seven to round out my list. I think James Harden's going to have a bounce back year. They're a team that could climb these rankings. He might be a really good dark horse MVP bet. I haven't looked at those odds specifically yet. Maybe he's high enough. Just the fact that he took a pay cut, which I don't necessarily advocate for, but he said that he was considering it and he did what he said that he was going to do. And then there's reports about him being in shape and healthy. And we don't really hear anything about James Harden's fitness over the off season. I feel like something has finally clicked for him that he knows he's not going to be able to to skate by by asking out from these teams and that he's going to be under even more of a microscope now because he forced his way to Brooklyn, a place he wanted to be with teammates he wanted to play alongside and then forced his way out. Uh, I actually don't have a problem with his decision because clearly Brooklyn is a dumpster fire and I wouldn't want to have Kyrie Irving time my livelihood of Kyrie Irving at all. So I, I think that, you know, is fine, but I just feel like something's going to click with him. And you talk about now 
If Embiid's healthy, Tyrese Max is your third option. We saw him flourish last year when that happened. I think the roster's a lot deeper and more well-balanced. They have perimeter defenders who are actually mobile in P.J. Tucker, De'Anthony Melton, Daniel House. All of those guys should be able to shoot the three ball at, at a high clip. Um, Tobias Harris like quietly had some really nice moments in the postseason as well. This team, it'll be tough for them to make any major changes over the course of the regular season, but they're not barren of salary matching tools. So, And they can trade some first-round equity. Uh, they're just a team I'm watching. And then I do have, I threw an eight here. I don't trust this pick because I do think they'll break it up, but the Nets have to be somewhere. I don't trust them. And if you said KD and Kyrie stayed in Brooklyn, I'm not going to pick them to win the title. I don't think I'd have in my top five, but we got to talk about them. Just having KD, Kyrie, um, Nick Claxton coming back, Ben Simmons, excuse me, I forgot about him. You bring Patty Mills back. Cam Thomas might have a pretty big breakout year. They really like Daron Sharp. Sharp. Maybe he gets more run. Joe Harris being healthy is huge. Seth Curry and Harris are both the ideal superstar compliments on the offensive end. I think, again, if they keep this team together, uh, I even love the Royce O'Neal fit. I think he'll be better on defense than people are crediting. It's just he was in Utah where he was over leveraged for years on end when looking at the perimeter. I don't know that they have enough defense. If they hit on the TJ Warren signing though, while keeping Kyrie and KD uh, and then Ben Simmons is healthy and on the court they're they're a team with championship upside. I would never invest in it. If everyone stays together, but they do need to be mentioned. Fascinating question. It's subject to change. And my title pick, I I'm not making a title pick though. I'm ranking my title contenders. I'll make my title pick closer to the regular season. I don't even know if anyone cares about my title pick, but I just want that on, on this record. Aiden from YouTube asks, which player does advanced stats hate, but the eye test loves? So I set some parameters here just because I don't want to be penalizing um, like players who were in their um, rookie or sophomore seasons, which immediately took out Poku because he's a player that you watch. And even if he's out of control, I think you love him. Uh, but advanced stats do not like him. I was surprised to find... Uh, and then also like a Cam Thomas feels like he could eventually become the answer to this question. But again, I didn't want to pick uh, a rookie or a sophomore. So my, my actual pick, and I'm going to give an honorable mention here. I was just not surprised at how much advanced stats did not love Powell because I did some advanced stats research. This isn't just me um, like doing this off the cuff. The one I'm picking, I absolutely know. And then just made sure. Uh, but I, I'm just shocked because Norm Powell plays the type of game, especially the past few years, hits threes, Gives you rim pressure. Not a great defender, but like is like has. We'll see how he does after this latest injury, but he can like move around and give you some defense at the two and the three spots there. So I was a little bit surprised about that. And he's played for like sometimes advanced stats could be skewed when you're playing for really bad teams and you're just super high volume um, or just, I guess, heavily impacted by, by the team's performance overall. But he was, Powell was part of like the best Raptors team in Raptors history over the past couple of years. So that shocked me a little bit. The, my answer is Tyler hero right now. Uh, advanced stats. When you look at efficiency, his ability to maybe carry lineups on his own or elevate lineups on his own. They don't love him. The single advanced metrics don't love him. When you look at uh regularized adjusted plus minus from NBA shot charts, he ranks um, like in the, the bottom 100 of the league. I think this past season, I, I lost his place. Um, or maybe it was a three-year rolling average I looked at. And so he was pretty low there. He ranked in the three-year rolling average of regularized um, adjusted plus minus. He ranked 575th. And so we're talking about like, yes, that's low. And we're, we're talking about that's 575 out of 
fewer than 700 players or 750 players. He ranked 575 out of 775. And so they like, that's just not, that's not a great standing. And yet you watch him. And yeah, you could see some of the shot selection where that stuff's iffy, doesn't get to the rim or the free throw line a ton, but he, the man is just crafty. He can move away from the ball. He can really knock down these quick fire threes. Um, looks very comfortable operating off the dribble. He's, I think he's kind of improved his decision-making as a passer and can throw some like really flashy, smart passes in the half court. Not someone that will wow you there. You watch him though, and I think you feel him as an impact player, and yet the metrics don't love him. And I'll give an honorable mention here. I don't think everyone likes watching him, which is why I didn't pick him, but Colin Sexton would be another good one here. Uh, Colin Sexton, by the way, as of recording this, still, still, still a free agent. So, um, doesn't seem happy with the Cleveland Cavaliers' offer. But yeah, anyway, Oscar asks, uh, this is from, we're moving on to our Twitter questions now. Um, thank you for the YouTube questions. The, again, our YouTube channel is in the fledgling stages, but help us build it up. You can ask questions there. Oscar asks, what was Michael Jordan's worst finals game? Uh, being so young and not having a recollection of what his games actually looked like in the finals for pretty much all of them. Um, I have like the very early childhood memories of those dynastic bulls, but I went by game score on Stathead, and two stood out. They're the only two finals games where he has a game score under 10. And the lowest one is a 7.7 game score. It was against the Jazz in 97. Uh, the final score of that game, by the way, is 78 to, to 73. Uh, the Jazz won that one. But that's just, wow. It was game four of the 97 finals. 7.7 game score. He was 11 of 27 from the field, 11 of 23 on twos, 0 of 4 from three. Didn't take a free throw. True shooting percentage of 40.7. Still dropped 22 points, four assists on three turnovers, negative uh, 1.6 box plus minus in that game. The second least effective game for him in the finals came in 96 against the Seattle Supersonics RIP, even though the, the Oklahoma State Thunder are still the same organization. This one was also game four. Bulls lost at 107 to 86. They got absolutely shellacked. Uh, Jordan was six of 19 in 41 minutes. O of two on, on three pointers. Uh, he was six of 17 on two pointers, 35.3%, 11 of 13 at the foul line though, which I think salvaged a lot of his score, more turnovers than assists. He doubled that up four turnovers to two assists and then 23 points. I'd probably argue that that has to be his worst, um, playoff game even though the other one has a lower game score just because the bulls were blown out he shoots a lower percentage on twos got to the foul line though so i think that matters the pressure there but to double up on your assist the turnover ratio like that's not great and it also just happens to be the lowest um the single lowest box plus minus by a mile that he's posted in the final so that is going to be my final answer game four against the seattle supersonics in 1996 was jordan's worst NBA finals game. And it doesn't, it doesn't fucking matter because the bulls went on to win the championship that year. Anyway, grant asked, do you think we can moneyball basketball? Uh, I guess if we got Brad Pitt to run a team, maybe my serious answer is no. And I saw, I think people responded to this tweet by saying, yes, uh, I can't get there. I can't get there because in baseball, it's different where it feels like the aggregate product is like at the same time standalone versus by committee and there is an element of teamwork there but you can plug and play each player's individual performance um certainly into the offense the batting order without regard for the context of the rest of the team if that makes sense and so whereas in basketball 
if you were just searching for the cheapest players who provide value looking at points per game, they have to operate all in tandem at the same time. Uh, unless you're thinking that, oh, we can go with a bunch of really good one-on-one players without regard for, let's say, accuracy from beyond the arc. But you can't do that. You have to factor in, well, how well do they shoot off the catch? Can they cut to the basket? Um, can they, you know, how are they as a ball handler? And are they a good playmaker? Or do they get tunnel vision? What's their turnovers like? There's just like, there's a team impact in basketball that's more complicated than baseball on offense specifically. And I mean, even on defense too, where you're basically, it's a zone, let's just say for MLB, for baseball players. Whereas in basketball, like there's a bunch of switching. There's a bunch of difficult reads that you're going to have to make. I'm not saying it's a harder sport. I'm saying it's more of a by committee sport, even though in basketball you can have a singular player impact the game way more than anybody else in baseball. That might be the argument here. If you wanted to moneyball by saying, well, can you build a dominant team with one star and then tailor the roster perfectly to his needs very cheaply? Maybe, but does that really constitute moneyball? So, You guys can let me know if I'm way off with this answer, but I just think that basketball is done too much in concert uh, for it to be moneyballed. Carrigan asked, let's assume Donovan Mitchell wants out of Utah. We don't need to assume FYI Carrigan. We know that he wants out of Utah, but it's fine playing there until his contract is up. So another three years, three full seasons before he hits free agency for, for anyone at home who's wondering, is there a path for Utah to build a contender around Donovan before he leaves? Is there a way to convince him to resign in Utah? Uh, I think if he becomes super max eligible, that might help him resign. But I'm with you in the sense that can you win a title? Maybe that convinces him to stay, or does that make him just as likely to leave because he can say, well, what else am I going to do here? I already won a championship. So I don't, I would just say winning is the best remedy for keeping him long term if you wanted to. And your biggest hope of doing that would be to win at the highest level. Um, sustainably, and also with him as the focal point. You don't necessarily want to displace him. So when you go about building a contender, I think you need got another um, primary scoring option and then a bunch of really good defenders and shooters. Like, have these two... Um, and then you also want him playing alongside someone who can play off the ball as well so that they can trade off. Mitchell, we know, can play off the ball. is a pretty good catch-and-shoot guy. Um, his other teammate needs to do that. How do you find... I think it starts with finding his equal or his superior on the roster who is going to do more on offense so that it feels like there would be an easier ego fit than it was with Gobert, who I think believes and rightfully so that he's been criminally underrated because the value he provides on defense, but his role on offense has been, it's limited because of his skill set, but it's also been limited by design in Utah. We saw him do more with the French national team. I don't think that he could be like Carl Anthony towns or even Akeem in the post, but That's just, you know, you need someone who I think is going to be on that same similar offensive level with with Donovan. Maybe it's just an older player with more superstar goodwill built up where Gobert and Mitchell kind of popped uh, on identical trajectories, it felt like. So even though though Gobert was there first, you have to identify that player and then get him. Who's that player? And it's not going to be the Kevin Durant. It's not going to be the Bradley Beal. It has to be a younger player. If Shea Gilders-Alexander all of a sudden became available in Oklahoma City, it'd be him would be great, but he's not going to become available anytime soon. Uh, could you get Pascal Siakam out of Toronto? That's someone who is probably like Donovan Mitchell's equal when you're looking at in terms of their, uh, their star standing, uh, a better defender than him. And I would 
I might prefer Pascal Siakam overall, but that would be the type of talent that you're going after. Um, again, I'm trying to figure like realistically, you could also go like the route of, well, can we roll the dice on a youngster with star potential? Who's kind of a distressed asset right now. I'm thinking of Michael Porter jr. Of course, where he is ridiculously good. Maybe you buy in him being an off of star, but Mitchell is better right now. And he's going to be more important just because of his facilitation and his ability to operate more from the point of attack. Um, but he's also like kind of the veteran in that instance. So he's above Michael Porter Jr. I just don't think that doesn't fast track the jazz to contention at all. But I think you start with something along the lines of that. And the Siakam one would, would certainly be preferable. Um, or let's just say, I mean, two ways to go about this. Let's just say Kevin Durant trade is happening and then with the Pelicans and then, and they're giving up Brandon Ingram, but the Nets have decided they want to steer really hard into the draft pick direction. Can you latch onto that trade and get Brandon Ingram? Can you latch onto a trade with the Raptors and get OG Ananobi in a Kevin Durant deal, depending on how Brooklyn feels once more, whether they actually want to compete? I think that's what you're probably looking at. Um, the star market is tough to read right now because, again, you can't go the, oh, if KD becomes available, if Bradley Beal becomes available. I don't love the Beal fit anyway, but the timelines are just so disparate that, uh, and I, I do know timeline is like this overrated buzzword, but you want someone who's on a similar trajectory to Mitchell. The issue here is, though, Carrigan, you would really have to ignore the writing on the wall. You have enough pick equity to go out and get involved in some spicy negotiations, but you would have to ignore writing on the wall because you, the only reason you would go after said star is if um, you knew Donovan was open to staying, if not outright staying. And we just don't have that intel right now. And I bank on the fact that he has not communicated to the Jazz that he is willing to stay. You go the Ben Simmons route too, speaking of distressed assets. And yes, the Jazz can have both of them because they signed to Mitchell. They're not trading for both of them uh, for anyone who was going to point that out. Uh, interesting question. I just think it's too far gone at this point. And the hoops you need to jump through, it begins with finding the other star. That's what it begins with. And I just don't think they're even necessarily open to that um, without actually knowing whether Mitchell would be willing to stay. Next question comes from Josiah. Is there a precedent for an inefficient scorer through three, three seasons like Barrett becoming an efficient player? You, you hear the word inefficient and it feels insulting to RJ Barrett, but it's also just the truth. He's averaging 17.5 points through his first three seasons on 51.1 true shooting. Has yet to even really sniff league average true shooting through his first three seasons. That is a problem. I think what's difficult about him is you can't just plug in the numbers and see who else comes up and spit out. And, you know, Russell Westbrook meets the benchmark of 17 points on under 52 true shooting. But his role has just been so different and inconsistent. He's at once been held back and brought along slowly, but then also diversified. Is he on the ball? Is he away from the ball? And then he was finally given the keys towards the end of last season. So when you actually, he's compared most to a Jimmy Butler, I think because people see his defensive potential. Um, and that sort of tracks just as someone who was, he played more than Jimmy out of the gate under Tibbs, but is who has been underutilized or at least limited in his usage on offense. And it's not going to be till later until he explores his full scoring arsenal. I think a better comparison, it's not play style, but I'm just looking at matter of opportunity and trajectory might be Bradley Beal. Um, so when you put in the numbers of players who averaged at least three um, or excuse me, averaged at least 15 points in their first three seasons with a true shooting percentage below 52. Ty, um, Bradley Beal is one of the ones that spit out. Kemba Walker spits out as well, but like his 
off the dribble jumper, all of a sudden started falling, but he at least looked like he could take it. Uh, RJ Barrett, I still have questions about the off the dribble jumper. You could even go with like a, um, if you really wanted to, like a Tyreek Evans here, where depending on how, which end of the spectrum you want to go on, where, yeah, he's going to have a lot of inefficient seasons, but he'll have, let's look at the season at Memphis, um, the best season of his career where he pops and maybe that sustains. It didn't for him. He had a whole bunch of off court issues as well. Uh, but that, that could be something to look at. I don't think we're, excuse me, I don't think we're dealing with the second coming of like Russell Westbrook level detrimental inefficiency. And even Russ had some higher efficiency season. He is spit out by the way, in the um, parameters that I said, I won't read all of them um, just because there was 38 names, including RJ's that came back out. But like maybe even I thought about a Jamal mash Mashburn, but I have hope that RJ will be more efficient and Mashburn was never actually efficient. That was a name that sprang to mind. And then I looked and he just wasn't efficient at all. So could it be a John wall type thing too, where he has some good three point shooting seasons, some really bad ones, um, but his overall good finisher, RJ Barrett has yet to show that, but he was putting a ton of pressure on the basket towards the end of this past year. I like the Bradley Beal parallel here, just because he's probably, RJ is probably, he is similar to Jimmy Butler in, in play style. But when you look at how Beal was brought along with wall already there, it took him a while to get more offensive agency. RJ Barrett's definitely bounced around a little bit more. But Beal, look, 51.32 shooting. True, 51.32 sh true shooting. Oh, my God, guys. Uh, through his first three seasons. And since then, and he's not even coming off, let's be clear, he's not coming off a, a banner season um, by any stretch. It was one of the like the worst years of his career. But you go from 51.3 in the first three seasons to 57.6 over his next eight. And that's including, you know, you, you want to throw, I'm willing to throw last year out just for a minute. He didn't even play in half the games, was injured. He was at 58. So it's not like this huge difference anyway over the the, the six seasons. Sorry, I, the math was wrong there. So 58 in the six seasons after his third. That's, you know, and it's also someone who is similar that he needs to be used in a bunch of different ways. Where Bradley Beal's best off is a secondary maestro, maybe pick and roll runner. That's probably RJ Barrett's best role, if it even is his, his best role. Um, Bradley Beal's never been like this high end guy getting to the basket, but if he's going to improve as a finisher, um, RJ, like that could be just a different way that he's scoring. And you saw that Bradley Beal, look, he didn't have the, the nicest start to his three point shooting, um, in his career either. Uh, he, he, uh, oh no, he did. I'm trying to remember. Yeah. A lot of it off the catch. And we've seen it kind of dip over the past few seasons, uh, as he's gotten more on ball agency. Is that something with Barrett? where maybe like the jumper efficiency is necessarily never where we want it to be, but he gets to the line at a healthy clip, improves his finishing around the basket and is able to prop up a better than average league efficiency. And even just the catch and shoot shooting though, threes, those are still going to be a part of his offense. Even at his best, that's a way for him to bring up his efficiency. So if you're, if you're asking me whether I think RJ Barrett will become an above average player on offense when looking at his efficiency, I'm going to guess yes. Um, but if you want to just look at the roar harbingers uh, of where he's at through season number three, it's fair to be concerned. I just think we haven't seen him used in constant enough states or be able to explore the, the more underexplored parts of his game often enough to make that declaration. So it's not, if you're expecting him to be an all NBA player or an all all-star player, that ship has far from sailed. That is certainly on the table, even if it's not the most likely outcome. The NHL chicken 
asks, we always talk about what teams will be better next season. Which team will fall off the hardest next year? Like the Knicks and Nets this past year. I'm not, so I'm not going to pick the jazz for this one, just because they're getting, they're sort of tearing it down by design. The three that stand out to me, I'm going to rank them in order of, well, I'm not going to rank them. Um, so I'm going to throw this name, this team out first. I have the bulls who didn't get worse. Maybe they got a little better when you're looking at Andre Drummond becoming their backup five. Will on the ball ever be healthy? Uh, Patrick Williams could be healthy for a full season. That stuff matters, but they fell off last year towards the end. And so could this season, if it's bad, just be an extension of that. Then I have the Mavs. They lost Jalen Brunson and didn't replace him. And you don't just replace Jalen Brunson, even if he is of secondary importance compared to, to Luca. Um, so they're a team that could fall off, but they still have a lot of talent and I could see their defense still being really good. If Spencer Dinwiddie has like a great campaign, um, you wind up replacing a lot of what Brunson did to be fair. They're well short of title contention. I wouldn't call them a team that would improve, but they could definitely stop the the floor from falling out underneath them. Uh, my actual pick is, and I, I do this every year, so you're welcome to the fans. It could be the Grizzlies, just because I don't think it's through any fault of their own. Although the two things I'll point out is what happens with Jaron Jackson Jr. Uh, how long is he out to start the season, if at all? What does he look like when he comes back? Does his three ball fall? at a higher clip once he gets there. And they kind of made another bet on their development by letting Kyle Anderson walk. They're basically saying that Zaire Williams is going to be ready. That, excuse me, Desmond Bain is ready. That they're going to probably use Jake LaRavia or David Roddy, or maybe both of them right off the bat. That's quite the flex for a team that was just number two in the West. And so they're sitting pretty to a certain extent, but the degree to which they valued their own players has almost created this variance and outcomes for them next year. So if Zaire Williams doesn't make a leap forward, if Jaron Jackson Jr. misses time, if you don't get anything out of Roddy or, or LaRavia, you should still be a good team. Will you be as great as you were this season? Will your record without job be as good this season? If he misses any time. Then the other part of this is the conference. We're talking about a West that's going to get a fuller strength Denver and Clippers team back into the fold. The Lakers might not suck. Like if Anthony Davis is healthier and LeBron plays in most of the games, even if they have Russ, they should still be better. The Minnesota Timberwolves just traded for Rudy Gobert and whatever you think of them, they got better. Uh, the Pelicans are adding Zion Williamson. The Warriors aren't going anywhere. I don't expect the Suns to go anywhere. I doubt Dallas sort of falls off a cliff even without Brunson. So the Grizzlies, I'm not predicting that they'll miss the playoffs right now. I haven't even gone through what I think the playoff picture will, will look like, but it's going to be tough sledding. I mean, Technically speaking, the Kings could be better, and I think they will be a little bit better. We'll have to see. Um, but Portland, if Damian Lillard's fully healthy, they 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 feel like they have enough defensive talent to make some noise around him. That's going to be tough for Memphis. That would be my pick right now, but I, that comes with the caveat. I've picked them to miss the playoffs in each of the past three years, and I've just been dead-ass wrong. So if you need me to eat shit, Grizzlies fans, I already have, and I'm I'm tempting it again. November in Denmark says, it seems to me that today we have a larger number of quote unquote blueprints. NBA teams are trying to build um, contenders around like elite wings gives Clippers and the Celtics as an example, elite centers, the Sixers and Nuggets, twin towers, the Cavs and Wolves, small ball shooting, Golden State Warriors as the example, or some combo of these thought. I mean, you're not wrong. These are, uh, yeah, I, I, you know what? Yeah, I'm, 
I don't even mean to sound dismissive while I'm telling you you're right. I would agree with you. And like, there's also just the position element of it, uh, which is probably the elite wings when you look at the Clippers in Boston. But you have teams who are also trying to straddle both lines. I would use Boston as an example. I'd use Golden State as an example. So you have that in addition um, to there are these teams where, no, you're not running dual bigs, but you have the Sixers and Nuggets trying to build around Joel Embiid. Now you have some teams with two bigs, or even the fucking Magic are going to have like quadruple bigs at this point with Isaac and Bancaro and uh, Wendell Carter Jr. and Mo Bamba, they might run out triple big lineup, similar to what the Cavs did with marketing Allen and uh, Mobley. And look, I, I kind of respect the, the, first of all, this is a great, I think this is a great question. And it also shows, um, I, I think an astute understanding of the game, because there are people that just, they look at shot charts and they say that, the game is being played. Why would you want to watch the the same thing over and over again? Look at where all these teams are coming from. Just because their shot profiles might be comparable, and they not all are, doesn't mean that the styles are uniform. They are varying, and there's different ways to get to the same end game. And that's what's fun to watch. There are teams that employ more off-ball movement than others. There are teams that are employing more speed than other. And so I think this is a really good observation where it does feel like when we had gotten to the point where people think that just because we saw all the the talk about get to the rim and shoot threes and get to the foul line. Like that's just common sense. That's about spacing court geography. Um, not all court geography is created equal or in the same way, even if it's aim, even if it's, even if the resulting geography is, you know, a kindred spirit. So I actually, this is a great question and, or at least a great observation is I think that there's more stylistic variance in the league today than there's ever been. Uh, let me know what you all think about that, though. Uh, thank you for, for that little thought, November Denmark. My thought is that you're right. Daniel Mortensen asks, can you do a video on who out of the lottery teams from last year could make the jump like Cleveland did this year? Um, bring it to this episode. Maybe I'll clip it and make it its, its own YouTube video as well. So this was like kind of hard. And maybe the play-in tournament has made that a little bit hard. I wanted to pick something that wasn't obvious or cheating. So cheating would be the Minnesota Timberwolves or the Pelicans because they were in the play-in, but they ended up making the playoffs. Um, so they were your seven and eight seeds. Um, do you pick the Blazers or the Lakers? No, you don't. Because like they're not particularly young. Um, and so it's the same story with if I believed in the Knicks, which I, I won't say that I do. Uh, I, like I try to avoid that. And even the Hawks, like they're just sort of entrenched. They're not like super young anymore. And so they made the leap. That's not as um, surprising as as it would be for for other teams. I'm looking at this, and then it's interesting because so many other squads are in the earlier stages of their development, where you'd really have to step out on a limb here. But I, you know what? I don't have a problem doing it because I feel like people would have laughed if you said the Cavaliers were going to win 44 games this past year while Mobley and Garland missed some time, and Sexton missed, missed basically the entire season, and Jared Allen got hurt toward the end of the year, and they lost. Ricky Rubio played super well, and they would lose him for the season and have to move him. So people would have told you that you were bonkers for saying that. And so stepping out on these limbs is part and parcel of what we're doing. And my pick, I, I feel like it's going to be wrong, but my, my pick would actually be, and I think I, I thought about Orlando, I want to make that clear. I just feel like with Ben Caron his rookie season and the year that Suggs had last year, they're going to need at least another season to, to let it marinate. And Jonathan Isaac's coming back. That's a lot of integration. I thought about the Pistons as well. I just, I haven't seen enough of Ivy and Duran together to know. I'm just so high on Cade 
that he's best player on an NBA championship team material. I could see them catching people off guard and maybe like making a play in push with that in mind. They just didn't make enough material upgrades of, of veterans, you know, like having bring back Marvin Bagley and they still have Kelly Olenek and Isaiah Stewart. What does that front court rotation now look like with Duran? Uh, they do have Jaden Ivey on. So if he hits immediately, if Killian Hayes continues improving, like he did at the end of last year in Sadiq Bay, a team to watch for sure. I also, this was my second choice. And maybe it's just because they haven't moved Miles Turner or Buddy Heald yet, and they might. But the Pacers, like, I'm just not going to rule out them at like good, being good. Tyrese Halliburton, ready. They have Chris Duarte, microwave score. Then you, you're adding Benedict Matherin to this, uh, to this core, and he looked fantastic at points in summer league. Uh, if Miles Turner stays healthy, you have O'Shea Brissett, just. Why not? It's the East. You're coached by Rick Carlisle. Like, I do think Kyle Burton's that good and that the surrounding talent right now is at least that interesting. Jalen Smith having to come on towards the end of last season, maybe they're just that surprise team. I'm going to pick against my better judgment because they're in the Western Conference. I'm going with OKC. And I think the argument against this, aside from they play in the West, is their second most important player immediately, Chet Holmgren, is just a rookie. Fine. Fair. The other question will be, you can make the jokes about them shutting down guys at the end of the year, but like, just look at how they're going to juggle playing time. They have so many guys on the payroll who at least deserve a shot to be tested out. Can we guarantee that they're even going to be playing their best players uh, the lion's share of the time or caring about these higher stakes moments over player development, which they're still in? What I'm just going to say is the two things that stand out to me here are, I just think their talent's a lot better than people give them credit for. Shea Gilgis-Alexander is an all-star, all-NBA-type player. We just need to see him play for a full season. No shutdown business and stay healthy. Lou Dort, really good. Just, you want more from him on offense? You'd like to hit him just a little bit more of his threes, but he can attack in open spaces, and he's just a defensive brick wall. Then Chet Holmgren. Josh Giddy as a passer, a rebounder, nice size on defense. You'd like to see him score more have better touch away from the basket to still have that type of playmaker on here. The talent is just all over. Um, Alexei Pokashevsky is someone who I thought didn't necessarily end the season this way, but started to put things together. These coherent performances where he was impacting positively these minutes for extended stretches. Darius Baisley, what he showed on defense last year, will he ever find his offensive niche um, niche? So yeah, there are some swing pieces here. What does Uzman Jang look like as a rookie? Someone who I, I really like. Are they going to be able to get enough shooting here? I think keeping Kendrick Williams, extending him was big because um, that insinuates that they're not going to trade him down the line. So he's important to your floor spacing. So is Pokashevsky and even Shea Gilgis Alexander is off the dribble shooting. Um, they have Mike Muscala. I think that's why they eventually keep him around. They have more roster decisions to do. I feel like this could be a really badass defensive team, though. And if you're a badass defensive team, you can actually win some games. So I don't expect them to be a playoff squad. And I think if, if you forced me to like pick which lottery, I would start cheating, looking at like which lottery team is going to be back in the playoffs. It would be, I'd say the Wizards, even though they're not the younger one. Uh, but I'm stepping on the limit with OKC because I just think that they've got the nice mix of defensive talent, probably just enough offense, just enough intrigue everywhere. And finally, this was the point that I've been leading up to here. The consolidation trade for Usman Jang, while it was just three whatever heavily protected picks, it showed me that they are willing to consolidate. Maybe the roster space is forcing their hand. They didn't have to go that high for the number 11 pick, and they did. And so that shows some level of urgency or interest in making waves 
now. And I think that just combined with sort of the flyers, the, the wild cards on this roster makes them a team that could catch a ton of people off guard, even if they're not on the Cavs level of finishing six games above 500. This last question will make this from Carson B. Cox. What do you think are the most interesting lineups the Nuggets can put together this year? Uh, I want to see Bones, Jamal, Murray, Bruce Brown, Michael Porter Jr., and Jokic. Yeah, I'm with you on that lineup. I also want to see sort of the skew defense where you pulling Michael Porter Jr. for uh, if Gordon's on the court and then throwing Bruce Brown in there. The two that I'm going to single out is give me Jokic with a fuck ton of just defense that isn't this offensive liability. And so you could say that Bruce Brown might fall in that, but Jokic, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, Bruce Brown, Aaron Gordon, and then Jamal Murray is fine. Like, give me your two stars, surround them with a bunch of defense, and that's that's a set, that amounts to basically pulling Michael Porter Jr., and that might be how they close games, just in place of stronger defenders. I wouldn't be opposed to, like, pull Murray from that just trying to get by like Murray's resting, Michael Porter Jr.'s resting. Uh, throw Jeff Green into that with KCP, Gordon, and Bruce Brown. Just Jokic with a shit ton of shooting. Um, not necessarily the most bankable spacing. The one that I actually want to see, which is why I saved it for last, is let's get weird. And we're going to do this during, look, Jokic isn't going to play for like between 12 and 18 minutes every game, whatever it ends up being. So you're going to have filler time there. Give me, it's like smaller with, I want Gordon and Michael Porter Jr. in the front court with Bruce Brown, KCP, and I think I want Bones Highland in there. So just give me bonkers offense out of Porter Jr. and Highland. And then you have these good defenders in Gordon, Bruce Brown, and KCP. And then you're also kind of positionless, not to the point where I think you could switch everything on defense, but Bruce Brown can defend bigs and smalls. Ditto for for Aaron Gordon. KCP can defend like smalls through bigger wings. Uh, Michael Porter Jr. is a, like a pretty good rim protector. It's like use kind of him as your center on defense if you really need to. And then Bowen Highland is just an offensive spark plug. I, I love, love that kid. So that would be the lineup I would want to see. It's just sort of that you could call it like, it's not Michael Porter Jr. plus bench, but like really give Bones and Highland, Michael Porter Jr. the keys to your offense. Try and surround them with enough defense to make it work. I can't get over how much the Nuggets have opened up their realm of possibilities by adding KCP and Bruce Brown Jr. this offseason. That'll do it for me. If you're new to this podcast, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us. The subscription and downloads are the, really the, the most important thing that you can do, and they help us out a ton. If you're watching this on YouTube, please, we're growing this channel. Be a part of it. We have a lot of fun around here, and you can ask me questions that I will answer in future mailbag episodes. I will start soliciting more consistently on YouTube. I know I answered a couple from from comments that people had. So you can leave them in comments. I'm pretty good about monitoring them. Thank you all for continuing to listen to this. Until next time, I leave you with a shout out to the one, the only, the legendary, the untradeable, the untouchable, Frank Nila Kina.